Hi everyone and welcome to this week's episode of Rated R for Reviewed with me, Edward James Beasley. This week will be another triple film review as I realise that you have been most patient podders. I'm not sure if that's a term yet coined but if not, you heard it here first. I know I've been promising it for a while now and it is here at last. First up on my radar in this episode is Jim Jarmusch's hotly anticipated, at least by me, zombie comedy, The Dead Don't Die. Starring Jarmusch alumni Bill Murray and Adam Driver as small town cops in Centerville, where a series of initially strange and then straight up apocalyptic events take place, not the least of which involves the dead rising from their graves to feast on the small town's inhabitants. A possible side effect of polar fracking, but not if you ask the US government. Next up, Benedict Cumberbatch and Michael Shannon star as Thomas Edison and George Westinghouse, respectively, as the pair battle for supremacy of America's fledgling electrical infrastructure. Finally, we have The Chambermaid, the feature directorial debut from Lila Aviles, which follows the day-to-day life of Eva, a hard-working chambermaid at a high-end hotel in Mexico City. There'll be a short look at new trailers in cinemas, and as usual, we'll come back to these when we look at the films to see whether our expectations were met, let down, or totally subverted. Just to warn you though that this week there was only one new trailer shown that I haven't already talked about, but I'll discuss this nonetheless. So, first up we have The Dead Don't Die. This is Jim Jarmusch's zombie comedy and a love letter of sorts to George A. Romero and the classics of the horror subgenre. Set in the aptly middle American town of Centerville, state unknown but the implication is Midwestern, we follow a selection of the residents including police chief Cliff Robertson, Bill Murray and officer Ronnie Peterson, Adam Driver, as they investigate the strange goings-on in the town including missing livestock, a sun that doesn't want to set and a continuing string of gruesome killings. Media reports of the earth being taken off its axis resulting in the rotation going askew and strange radiation coming from the moon are refuted by the government's energy spokesman, but the residents of Centerville soon find themselves facing down hordes of the town's former occupants returned from the grave to, well, do some fairly standard zombie stuff, eat the living and spread the zombie infection. This has been dubbed the greatest zombie cast ever disassembled. It features a wealth of additional characters including Tilda Swinton Zelda, a Glaswegian native and new town resident mortician with a sideline in samurai sword wielding martial arts badassness. Local farmers and shop workers including Hank, played by Danny Glover, and Marga, actually I think it was Marwa, the more honestly racist correction, hat-donning Frank, played by Steve Buscemi. There's also a band of juvenile detention centre residents and road-tripping teens led by Selena Gomez's Zoe. Oh, and not to forget Hermit Bob, the wilderness-living scavenger, played by Jarmusch regular Tom Waits. There are also turns from Caleb Landry-Jones, Rosie Perez, Rizza and Iggy Pop as an early undead riser, missing the sweet taste of human flesh and hot java. 
Indeed, in addition to dismembering and devouring, all the undead are gravitating towards those things that they did relentlessly in life. Be that swill coffee, watch TV, play sports, or get back on their social media apps. So reviews for The Dead Don't Die have been fairly meh, middling so-so from the general plethora of reviews that I looked at before the film's release. And perhaps disappointingly, this wasn't a case of mixed reviews in which some were really good and some were really bad, but just pretty much everything being fairly middle three stars-ish, which was a little bit disheartening because I was hoping for a Jim Jarmusch film that this would perhaps uh, divide the critics, which I would then hope to fall into the uh, category of loving the film, uh, rather than just everyone thinking it was okay. It's definitely got a Jim Jarmusch feel to it. There's lots of super deadpan moments, and I think one of the things that really resonates in his films, particularly the more comic ones, is that element of not just deadpan, but also this really kind of not laughing at your own jokes, not even acknowledging that the jokes are jokes or that they're funny in any way, just complete deadpan throughout. And that's totally in this film. There's a lot of good back and forth between particularly Bill Murray and Adam Driver at several points in the film as they're going around the town uh, investigating the uh, the weird goings on. This film really does pay homage to uh, a lot of the particularly the classic zombie movies. So I'm definitely thinking sort of Night of the Living Dead. Uh, there's a lot of in-jokes and references and nods to the subgenre. For instance, the group of teenagers on their road trip driving a Pontiac Le Mans, which I believe was exactly the same car model as that seen in the prologue of Night of the Living Dead. There's also various other things, including the uh, infamous naked zombie. And uh, actually, I believe one of the zombies who's killed later in the films is dressed up in almost an identical get-up to Bill Murray as he would portrayed himself in the film Zombieland. So there's lots and lots of nods to uh, not just zombie films, but also pop culture in general. I quite like the setup for this film. So it so it starts out that Robertson and Peterson uh, are off uh, following up on a, a complaint that they've received that Hermit Bob has gone and killed one of Farmer Frank's chickens. They then go and attempt to tell him off for this, uh, get shot at and then go on their way. And it's only after this that we start to discover that apparently the sun is not going down and it's gone well past the hour of sundown, but it's bright sunlight outside which is an interesting uh, trope for a horror film as obviously we're usually surrounded by uh, darkness uh, for any kind of horror film particularly zombie films so which is interesting because that's the second horror or quasi-horror film we've had recently including Midsummer, where that was turned on its head and we've got blinding sunlight rather than uh, darkness and shadows. There's a large array of characters in the film, which is kind of uh, follows the convention, I think, of this type of horror film, uh, that we get different groups of characters all striving to survive with the idea that their paths will cross later on in the film and they'll all come together and, and, and weave into the plot development and probably get picked off one by one as the film goes. While indeed many of the characters do get picked off, the plot of the film seems to get to the point where... They uncover that something terrible and apocalyptic and zombie involved is happening uh, and then drifts away. We, we got the sort of build up and sense that this is all going to come together and we expect all these stories to collide from the characters who initially get set up. Uh, but unfortunately, it doesn't really happen. And uh, although there's some interaction between the characters, 
there's not a great feeling that it's sort of bolstering the story and each section is moving the plot along to get our what we assume eventual surviving protagonists to the end and perhaps salvation so our expectations are kind of subverted in that sense but instead of subverting in the sense of going down a completely different path this is unfortunately more seems to peter out and loses track of itself as i said there's various roles and and a lot of them seem if you reflect back on the film to be uh, somewhat inconsequential and some of them even completely unresolved and one can't quite ascertain as to why they were even in the film to begin with as mentioned Tom Waits is in the film as Hermit Bob, who kind of offers a a narrative role and some philosophical response to the carnage that he's witnessing from the relative safety of the woods, be it as the uh, the livestock flees to the forests or witnessing the uh, particular members of the town that he wasn't so fond of being dismembered, or just noting what all the zombies themselves are doing, which is going back to being human zombies I guess and uh, interacting with their social media and going back to their lives and their routines and all the things that I'm guessing Hermit Bob has forsaken. It does seem as I said the film starts out more I think one problem with the film is that there's too many elements. I mean, as stated, it's the largest cast of a zombie film ever disassembled, but unfortunately that kind of hits it as a bit of a weakness. Whereas I had perhaps hoped for some more fun cameos in perhaps the same sense as something like coffee and cigarettes or even something more portmanteau-ish in effect, this just suffers from having too many different characters all kind of vying to have a certain amount of attention and focus and and as mentioned a lot of them fall by the wayside don't seem to service the plot in in any way at all and the plot just kind of falls away and we just have a few set pieces whilst there's comic moments again that doesn't really build up I wasn't left going this is really really funny it wasn't out and out horrorish there's not perhaps enough scares in the film to make it truly a a horror film you never lose sight of the fact that you're watching something reasonably light-hearted it's not comic enough to be a comedy it's not horrific enough to be a horror and the whole thing kind of loses cohesion because it has all of these characters in it that it wants to devote screen time to but a lot of them don't seem to service any particular function and i think that's how the film falls down i think there's a lot of ideas here and it just needed to be made more coherent and given a a stronger plot I think or a better sense of certain characters or perhaps just decide to be either funnier or more horrific or more of a social commentary. Trying to squeeze all these elements together unfortunately just leads to something that's a bit not enough of anything. As I said this does tread into being kind of a social commentary at certain points. It starts with a, a more coherent plot and we sort of determine that the reason for all of this happening is that they've been fracking on the uh, north and south poles as a means of garnering natural gas and this has somehow knocked the earth off its axis which is why there's some super long extended day and then the sun isn't setting at the start of the film and then the earth gets too close to the moon and there's all this radiation coming off it which apparently causes the dead to reanimate and so you get that kind of hint that this might be a comment on the climate crisis for instance or the american government's lack of accountability for uh, anything bad that's done to the planet but 
at the same time, there's also some social commentary on what the zombies are and what they're doing and that they're all just sort of going back to shopping or going on their phones or repeating the routines that they had day in, day out and the things that they always did. I guess was trying to be a bit of a a social commentary that consumerism turns us all into zombies and it doesn't really make much difference between the living and the dead. The only difference is that we're not eating each other's flesh, I guess. But there's perhaps not enough of this. And I I know that those kinds of political and social commentary do hark back to uh, George A. Romero's Night of the Living Dead, Dawn of the Dead particularly, and Day of the Dead that did have sort of social commentary. But the social commentary was more perhaps in how the surviving humans uh, interact with each other rather than what the zombies are, etc. So while I think there's, again, a bit of a homage to that, there's not enough of it to really underpin the film it's only touched upon and then not fully gone for there's lots of other strange things in the film there's some fourth wall breaking that happens at the beginning of the film and then a lot at the end where adam driver and bill murray are talking basically as adam driver and bill murray there's a repeated uh, country song called the dead don't die that goes throughout this film which is uh, purportedly written by a guy called Sturgill Simpson and they're constantly making reference to this throughout the film they find his CD the song keeps playing on the radio Bill Murray says it's weird it sounds so familiar and Adam Driver tells him yeah of course it is it's a theme song apparently Sturgill Simpson is actually a real country music musician who's made three or so solo albums again it's kind of a nice little nod and that element adds quite nicely to the sort of Uh, wistful and playful tropes that we expect from uh, Jim Jarmusch film but again it's not quite enough of it it doesn't happen all the way through the film it just sort of happens at the end and the end if you see the film is just it is totally bizarre I don't know if unsatisfying is quite the word to put it it's just you wouldn't have thought that would be the end when you start out the film and there's definitely one element of the of the end if you see the film you'll know exactly what I mean that just comes out of left field completely and obviously is supposed to come out of left field completely but it's it's very strange and it's not perhaps funny enough to warrant being there the whole thing it just kind of ends and it's not immensely satisfactory as mentioned the film just has so many elements uh, and doesn't really commit to any one particular aspect I think, unfortunately, it it then completely lacks direction. It has the Jim Jarmusch charm, but honestly, it's not going to escape the lack of coherent content, of coherent characters, uh, of any of the elements of the film really being followed through. I mean, I kind of thought it almost seems like the editor was given all the footage, asked to complete the editing of the film in a day, but wasn't provided with a script for the film. So ultimately, for me, particularly as a big fan of Jim Jarmusch, and I've, I've really enjoyed some of the films uh, he's made recently, uh, his last film, Patterson, I, I would definitely regard as one of the best films of the century so far. It was quite disappointing to see this. And again, I, I would kind of reflect those reviews that have come out. It's not god awful. You won't walk away from it feeling like you've been robbed of an hour and 40 minutes of your life, I don't think. It's reasonably entertaining in parts. Obviously, most of the cast is very likeable. There's elements to it that are quite fun, but it's just, yeah, it's not coherent. It doesn't mesh together, and it just feels like it wasn't finished, if that makes sense. Next up is The Current War, the epic tale of the battle for America's future of electricity in the late 19th century. 
often referred to as the War of Currents. The film sees Benedict Cumberbatch as Thomas Edison, the prolific inventor and pioneer of low-voltage direct current used for incandescence, that's lighting, and George Westinghouse, entrepreneur and engineer whose company developed a high-voltage alternating current system capable of generating far more power for a fraction of the cost. But as Edison sees it, by a means far more dangerous. The film charts the two's constant battle for supremacy throughout America to illuminate the nation town by town, leading to a climactic battle for the contract to illuminate the Chicago World's Fair of 1893. We witness the length the two men would take to push their own systems and strive for rapid breakthroughs, and the perhaps unlikely and contentious elements that would prove to be their making or undoing, including the development of the electric chair. The film also features Nicholas Holt as Nikolai Tesla, who during this period worked for both parties at different times, but, as we discover, never to receive the recognition he perhaps deserved. Further supporting roles come from Spider-Man himself, Tom Holland as Edison's assistant, Samuel Insull, and Catherine Waterstone as Margaret Westinghouse, wife of George. I didn't realise this, but apparently the film itself was originally premiered at the Toronto Film Festival in 2017. And the reason it was held back was because it was one of, the, I think, the last films produced by the Weinstein Company. Uh, and of course, after uh, the whole scandal of Harvey Weinstein, the film was shelved initially uh, and the distribution rights passed between uh, a couple of different companies subsequently until now, here we are two years down the line, uh, when it's finally got a release. I'm not quite sure how many other films this would have affected, how many other films have remained shelved and never come out. I mean, this is obviously a pretty large budget film with a lot of A-list stars. So it seems in many ways, especially considering this is a production company, it seems almost odd that these things would get shelved. I mean, it, it seems more likely if a, you know, a director or, or one of the actors in the film is the subject of a scandal. But uh, when it's a production company, it seems odder that, that films end up not being released, especially when, when so much has gone into making them and it wasn't the creative child of the person the scandal surrounded. So I'm, I, I'd be interested to find out what other films have ended up unreleased. The film opens onto a blizzardy wilderness, which isn't really explained until the film bookends with the same thing. And we start with Edison having made a breakthrough with direct current and looking for financial backers for his company in order to be able to start rolling this out on a large scale throughout American cities, starting with parts of Manhattan. And at the beginning of the film, there's a proposed meeting between Edison and Westinghouse in which Westinghouse, uh, an entrepreneur and, and an engineer who's interested in this, who's invested very much in gas in the past but is keen to move forward with any new technological breakthroughs and wanting desperately to partner with Edison arranges a meeting and a, and a dinner with him to which Edison blows him off and doesn't stop his train at the prescribed stop while Westinghouse and his wife are waiting at the station for him. And this is sort of given the dramatic idea that this shirk 
Edison flaking on him is, is sort of a calls to arms, essentially, for Westinghouse, who then decides to go up against him. And there's sort of a, the insinuation that this slight starts the entire war, which probably isn't particularly fair, but I guess works quite well as a dramatic plot device. The film goes on to discuss the whole difference between uh, alternating and direct current. Edison, who had supported direct current, which didn't provide huge amounts of power, but one generator could be used to illuminate several blocks of a city, whereas alternating current could be used to power far greater areas and, and have generators that could power hundreds of miles. And then the idea is that Edison rejects the alternating current because he believes it's too dangerous and Edison in the film is painted as being principled, perhaps too principled for his own business good because he rejects alternating current as being dangerous, essentially because, as we all know, human beings shocked by an alternating current uh, are liable to die, whereas his direct current was far lower voltage that wouldn't have been lethal. However, whilst at the beginning of the film, Edison is sort of painted as this genius who's incredibly principled, uh, if not a little kind of socially strange, uh, and Westinghouse is more the uh, philanthropist or entrepreneur, uh, sort of money-making, business-orientated guy uh, who's perhaps more ruthless. The characters do develop, and it, it doesn't become, as I had initially feared at the film, that it might be a bit of a Edison good guy, Westinghouse bad guy play but it was a bit more balanced and we grow to sort of see the constant power play and how one gets the upper hand on the other either by innovation by business smarts by schmoozing by stealing patents or suing the other for stealing patents and also by sullying or dirtying the other's name there's some quite interesting facets to this one of which particularly being the the whole element of the electric chair which plays quite a, a large part in this Basically, uh, initially, Edison trying to demonstrate that alternating current is dangerous by subjecting animals to it and watching them drop dead. But then it triggers the concept of humane executions via the electric chair and whether Edison would push Westinghouse's alternating current as a good means of humanely killing criminals in the knowledge that that would perhaps not play so well for consumers if they wanted such things in their own homes. There's very solid performances from a, a very strong cast, and I would say Michael Shannon in particular as George Westinghouse gives a predictably excellent performance. I thought it was very engaging, very compelling and quite believable, and I, I like that none of the characters in this film were painted as being especially perfect or as especially bad. They were all sort of, not just businessmen, but all of them to a degree were visionaries who wanted to progress the human race as it were. The film does cover a lot within I guess a reasonably short time period and some of the relationships I can't help but think are probably oversimplified or, or just not really touched upon. However there are some nice engagements I thought. There's one part towards the beginning of the film that I actually thought was quite touching in which uh, Edison's wife who died at a fairly young age has passed away and he's left with his invention, uh, which was a, a device for recording the sound of voice. So obviously something that definitely hits home for me. And he's left with these recorded cylinders of his late wife's voice, which I thought gave quite a powerful emotional resonance to that. If we think in terms 
of the fact that we all completely take for granted now that we can record ourselves, not just audio, but video as well for provenance and that that will always exist. But to go back then, that really wasn't something that anyone had before. And the idea that he was one of the first people who would have had a recording of somebody close to him who had died and having that for posterity and being able to listen back to that, I thought it was quite touching, quite nicely done, not overplayed. The set design, the costume design, the set pieces in this film are, are all absolutely fantastic. There's a really nice colour palette to it, I thought, a lot of sepia and brownish gold elements. The lighting's very good. And I really think that the film does look fantastic. And I mean, I've seen some criticism of the film that says actually it becomes too embroiled in its own set pieces, just becomes too visually lavish to to take over and detract from the plot itself. I'm not sure I entirely agree, but it is very lavish and and a lot of the uh, locations used fit very, very well, sort of lavish Victorian sets. Interestingly, the film was almost entirely filmed in the UK and used various locations such as Alexandria Palace, uh, University College London and Waltham Abbey. There might be a few too many Rocky-style montages in this, I mean, without the synth power ballads going over the top of them, but in a way where we're trying to convey what's going on over a particular period of time and the successes that each are having, it gets a little bit hackneyed with the constant newspaper headlines coming up, and the director loves this visual trope of having each of them light up this map of America with different light bulbs to show whether or not they're the ones who are providing power to the electrical lights of certain major towns and cities in America. And that gets a little bit overplayed throughout. So, I mean, I do understand it It works well to get this across. And I guess that underpins how the whole film actually is. It's fairly quick paced. It covers quite a lot in a reasonably short film, two hour film. And I would say it's workmanlike and it works. Everything's explained. The narrative moves along very quickly. A lot of things are touched upon and done so fairly well. It's not a resoundingly original take on how to do this kind of period biopic, but it does resist the urge to paint the characters uh, as i said as being two-dimensional as ruthless or bad or, or, or genius and good and i think even though it's not necessarily groundbreaking I, I think it's a pretty engaging film it was noted that there does seem to be a distinct lack of female characters in the film or particularly female involvement I guess possibly accurately, but I I could see why my partner summed up the trailer for the film as uh, a bunch of men fighting over things. Aside from George Westinghouse's wife, played by Catherine Waterstone, there aren't really any other female characters of particular note in the film who have any particular uh, involvement in the plot. I admittedly didn't expect a lot from this on the basis that the reviews weren't very good and I possibly was thinking not to even bother going to see it other than the fact that the cast was very good but I'm kind of pleased I did go and see it. I'm not quite sure I see why the reviews have been so negative. Admittedly I don't think it's a groundbreaking film that's going to win a clutch of Oscars but it was watchable. The performances were good. The set design was fantastic. There's a lot of little things to it that I quite liked. I thought the score was really good interestingly. Whilst it uses fairly conventional classical music for the film, there's an underpinning of what sounds to be classic synthesizers, so sort of early synthesizers, Moogs, perhaps underpinning it, which gives this sense of an electric pulse underneath, which I didn't think was overplayed, but I I picked up on it and I thought it was quite fitting. So I, I quite like that angle to it. And I thought it was engaging, as I said, if not groundbreaking. 
It's a decent, watchable film with some good performances on an interesting subject. And while it's not going to be my film of the year, I would say give it a watch if it's on a streaming service. Lastly, we have this is the feature directorial debut by actor Lila Aviles. We follow Eva, played by Gabriela Cartol, who is a 24-year-old chambermaid at an unnamed but fairly posh hotel in Mexico City. We witness as she works incredibly long hours in order to provide for her son, who we never see, and tries every one of a limited number of avenues to better her lot in life. Her shy work-focused agenda includes catering to the hotel guests' weird and often unreasonable requests, trying to keep her head down, attending union-provided educational classes and desperately wanting to gain a promotion to manage the hotel's prestigious 42nd floor and secure a red dress from the hotel's lost property. This is a really simple film. I believe that I did a little review of the trailer last week and I said that it looked like a human piece but I I really couldn't determine much about the plot of the film and that's essentially because there isn't much of a plot. This isn't how it's based, the narrative doesn't go through key points to have a clear beginning, middle and end and and character development. This is more a kind of fly-on-the-wall look at this character and at her day-to-day life and some of the things that she goes through not even things that you would imagine are particularly rare or eventful just more her day-to-day life the film starts with her clearing out a complete bombsite of a room and actually it was interesting because you start watching her doing all these things and putting the the inhabitants of the room's clothes away folding everything and it really gives you this sense as kind of the insight as to someone who is as people who do do housekeeping in hotels kind of are they're unseen you know people come in and clean up all your mess while you're not there and you'll never really know who did it you can't see them thank them etc they're just someone it's a it's an invisible job and i guess to that degree a, a kind of a thankless job but anyway she she starts out by clearing up this bomb side of the room and there's this quite good shot where she picks up this huge sort of flowing duvet and we see there's this hand underneath it and essentially the mind goes immediately to think, oh, okay, ah, this is the plot of the film. She finds a, you know, a body in the hotel room and she's going to get in over her head or it's going to become more complex or it's going to be traumatising, etc. But actually, it turns out that's not the case. And this body starts moving and it's just an old geezer who's, we're not quite sure if he's just fallen out of bed or had a particularly heavy night, but just kind of shoes her off without word. And that really sets the scene, I think, for this job. Her interaction is very limited that a lot of the time people don't say thank you. They don't know that she's done her job. She just has to be hidden, but make everything perfect. We start to get a bit of an insight into her character. She's very, very shy, which I think, again, is kind of unusual. This is a film where there is only one main character. There are some support characters, but she is in every single scene of this film. Every single scene in the film, which is about two hours long, follows her it's centrally about her there's no scenes with any support characters in and of themselves but she's very very shy very hidden doesn't say very much to anyone doesn't really acknowledge most of the people around her unless it's something that she wants or needs to do for the purposes of her job we get a little bit of display of humanity when she has these phone conversations with her son and somebody else who i guess is looking after her son but it's not made particularly clear who that is where she displays some excitement but otherwise she's very sort of closed down and just sort of keeps her head down and gets on with her work and it's very strange to have a film that completely follows one character like that 
where we get very little insight into the character, into her emotions, and that's all very subtle when it is in there, but also whose life and job is really very, very mundane. So it's quite a feat to make this film interesting and engaging, but somehow it is. And we do get to see a bit more of her interaction and we do start to get some some character development and just kind of got a sense of, of what she's going through. As I said, she apparently has this child at home and she works very long hours. She lives far away from the hotel. She often can't go home because she misses the last bus and then sleeps in a storage closet in the hotel. So we do start to get a picture of her life there and that it's very difficult, but that she keeps sort of persevering on. She goes to this union-led school where there's maybe three other students, and they're all sort of doing general secondary school, high school equivalent studies. But there's a sense that this character really wants to do well and improve her lot in life and make things better for her family. Uh, She's really, really sort of persistent. She really wants to get promoted and take over this 42nd floor because she's currently on the 21st floor, I think, which again is this strange concept of literally going up in the world and sort of working your way up this hotel to the top. And there's also a rather sweet element that she keeps going back to I guess kind of the head of the housekeeping and keeps asking about this red dress that uh, I assume a case that a guest has left behind and it's wound its way into lost property and no one's claimed it and she's sort of constantly going back and going oh has anyone claimed the red dress will I be able to get the red dress so that gives a bit of an insight into a desire to want things and sort of has this desire for things in her life to to get better so we do get hints at that. There's also some very strange elements to her character. For instance, she doesn't seem to eat anything but sweets when she goes to the cafeteria. And she does other odd things, such as there's one scene where she's in the bathroom filling up these little sachets with popcorn. I've no idea what the little sachets are. They look like sweet packets. But again, I'm not quite sure what the significance of that is. I don't know how much of this sort of formed a coherent script or if it was more that things were improvised when filming. It it kind of gives the sense that that might be the case. We do seem to find out a few other things about the character, and there's some hints, but again unconfirmed things about her, where we, we find out that she might be illiterate, but that's not really confirmed. And exactly what she's hoping to get out of her studies, again, is not entirely confirmed, other than we know that she wants to be promoted in this hotel, but not quite an idea if she has any life outside of the hotel. Her character development is small, and as I said, this only takes place over a fairly short space of time, but we do sort of start to see her come out of her shell while she's initially doesn't want to socialise with anyone else in the hotel, including the window cleaner who uh, flirts with her that she doesn't respond to at all, that as the film progresses, she does come out of her shell a bit. She does starts to have more interaction with some of the guests. She makes friends with one of the other women working there, and she does start to reciprocate some of the attention given by the window cleaner. But it's all fairly small and there's a real sense of claustrophobia in this film we never ever leave the hotel and another interesting element is that there's no music throughout the film by that i mean non-diegetic music so there's no no score it's incredibly human focused as i said it's odd to have this character whose personality is so obscured be the absolute focal point of of a feature film and in some ways i i almost think it shouldn't work but it does i mean some of the reviews for this film have been really really very good and i do appreciate the human element to it i i would warn 
a lot of people would not like this film. I think it is perhaps one that critics would enjoy more than your average cinema goer. As I said, there's very little in terms of plot to this. It does drag a bit, I think, in places. And there's not really even necessarily that much of a, a social commentary. It is more just about this person. Everything you glean from her is very, for the most part, very subtle. And it sort of builds up this image of a character. But as if you were... Uh, observing somebody from afar without seeing anything particularly insightful. But you do kind of get a feeling for the character and you do have an empathy with her, especially as she starts to come out of her shell and the rather simple things that I guess that she wants. And you do feel when some of those things are taken away from her and avenues are closed off or she's not given the opportunities, you, you do really feel sorry for the character as somebody who keeps her head down and, and works hard without rocking a boat and just kind of wanting to have something more and do something better and provide and I think it, it's a it's a nice central performance it's it's a difficult character because as I say it's so unshowy to really bring that humanity across and, and Gabriela Cottle does a really good job of that I can't imagine it was a particularly easy part to play because there's very little to work with but I think it's uh, it's very nicely done this film is definitely not for everybody, as I say, with it with a real lack of plot. But it is it is very human and it is charming in its own way. And there are certain points where it's kind of funny, uh, but not overly so. And if you like this kind of human portrait film where you don't require an awful lot of plot or, or narrative development, then you might enjoy it. If those things are pretty much essential for you to enjoy a film, I would say probably give this one a miss trailers so as i said this week i've only seen one new trailer that i haven't already talked about on one of the previous episodes so the one new trailer is for a film called transit which i think looks really interesting i couldn't find out an awful lot about the plot but the film is based on anna Seger's 1942 novel of the same name which was set during the second world war and is about a man who escapes a nazi concentration camp and flees to france where he tries to escape the country by posing as a writer who had committed suicide previously. Now the film plot seems from the trailer to be similar to this, but it, it's a somewhat confusing. I'm not. It seems to be set in the contemporary, which obviously doesn't make a lot of sense as someone German trying to flee the country via France in the contemporary. So I'm almost not sure if it's set in different time zones. There's almost a feel that this is set in different periods but with the same characters almost in sort of strange overlapping. But it might also be a, a dystopian future or perhaps a, an alternative present. It's really not clear by the trailer. I found it to be uh, very engaging. I definitely want to find out more about this. It seems like a very different way to make an adaptation of a novel that's set at a very specific time. So looking forward to seeing that. I think that's out within the next couple of weeks. So shall find out more and looking forward to uh, providing my feedback on the finished film. Well, I hope you've enjoyed this episode of Rated R4 Reviewed. I'll be back next time with some more reviews, which will likely include the... which will hopefully include Blinded by the Light, Animals and The Photograph. I've been Edward James Beasley. Thanks very much for listening, and I'll catch you next time.